Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. I'm Vic Singh, and this is it, man. Our journey through Roger's legendary career up to this point has reached its apex, number 20. We're going to be throwing a lot of look-back stats at this episode, but it's worth mentioning at the top, Brian, as we reflect our way through this, he's now been in 31 Grand Slam finals. That's 20 and 11 uh, in the Grand Slams for anybody that still counts on their fingers like me. There was a stretch in this run where he went to 10 straight finals. Today, we're looking back at 2018's Australian Open, Roger's 20th Grand Slam title over Marin Cilic. And after that, we're going to end cap our series with a best of look back. But first, the U.S. Open draws came out. What stood out to you? The first thing that stands out is, wow, I'm looking, it's late August and I'm looking at a U.S. Open draw. Like, who knew uh, that we would be here a few months ago? I know we talked about this last time. And again, it, it's just great that there is going to be a U.S. Open. But going into this tournament and with what we've seen in this Cincinnati tournament being played in New York, the Western and Southern Open, uh, Djokovic doesn't look like he's really missed a beat on the men's side. So he, he's the favorite going into this tournament. And then it just becomes a question of what are the surprises that are going to take place? I mean, you look at some of the first round matchups and depending on when you listen to this, I mean, these could be dated by then, but one that stands out with me is like a, like a tennis Sangren who should have beaten Federer in Australia this year. He's playing some of the best tennis of his life had some great opportunities earlier this year. He's a guy who has really transformed his body. Like, I mean, he was always in pretty good shape, but he has gotten in rock-solid shape. His coach, Michael Russell, was always one of the fittest players on tour. So he's got a very tough first-round match in uh, Roberto Bautista Agut. But it's interesting just because from this American perspective, where it's, okay, it's the U.S. Open, so you're always going to emphasize or think about the American players, and maybe more so this year with some of the bigger names staying home, there are real opportunities for Americans like a John Isner, like a Riley Opelka, a Taylor Fritz. And am I saying one of them is going to win the tournament? No, but would I be surprised if we see one of them playing on the final weekend? No, either. I, this is a great chance for one of these guys to really make a deep run. I mean, you look at the draw and it's easy and seems easy to just pencil in, okay, one semifinal is going to be Djokovic and Tsitsipas and I wouldn't be surprised if that's what we see, but is anybody in there kind of ripe for the picking? Like what is the fitness going to look like? Just so many unknowns going into this tournament that are going to make it really compelling over the next two weeks. Going back to 2018, is there going to be a player like Chung that emerged right in this tournament? Yeah. Yeah. It's so a young Chung makes it to the, uh, the semifinals in, in this Australian open, we're going to talk about, and I would say if there's going to be one, it's going to be one of the Americans, like a like a Taylor Fritz. That would be my prediction for a young guy. I mean, Opelka is more of a known quantity by this point. Like he's got this booming serve. So, yeah, he could. I mean, he's doing great in Cincinnati. He's the furthest. He's at quarterfinals at a Masters event. So it's almost like we know him, like we've seen more of a body of work. And of course, he stands out being seven feet tall with 140 mile an hour serve. Fritz is a little more like a traditional tennis player. He's not 
I mean, not that Opelka is not, but Fritz is somebody who has a, a really well-rounded game. And he's somebody who could, who could go on a run here. He's got a lot of, lot of self-confidence, a lot of self-belief. Um, I think he's the kind of guy who can make that big run. One of those two, let's, let's say. Just to, for completion, there will be no Federer and no Nadal in this tournament. Correct. And also no uh, Stan Wawrinka. So you've got three former champions uh, not playing in terms of... Is Andy Murray playing? Andy Murray is back. First time Murray is playing in a major uh, singles since Australia 2019. Uh, you would assume he would have been back earlier this year, but there weren't majors to play. Right. Um, yeah, Murray is back. So let's see. I mean, he looks pretty good in Cincinnati uh, before losing to Milos Raonic. So let's see what, what Andy Murray can do in this tournament. It'll be very fascinating. He's a guy now who's setting off metal detectors in airports because of his artificial hip. Um, he's got a tough first-round opponent in Yoshi Nishioka, who's a rising star kind of guy from Japan. He's got a title under his belt. Um, he could certainly beat Murray, but... I think you would you'd probably pick Murray, but it's not a shocking upset if Murray's bounced in the first round. Wow. Okay, so uh, real quick before we jump into 2018's Australian Open, just kind of recapping post Wimbledon 2017 to fill in any blanks. Uh, four key major points that I noted here was that Roger got to the Canada Masters final, lost to Zverev, lost to Del Potro in the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open. Shanghai Masters, he beat Nadal, who was ranked one. Um, I think that was kind of the highlight to round out the year for him. But he wins Basel as well, getting Del Potro back, though I think he'd probably trade tournaments if he could. Yeah, he also beat Del Potro in the, uh, in the Shanghai, in the run-up to that Nadal final, I think in the semifinals. This was the last time we really saw an extended period of time where Del Potro was healthy. And he carried that into 2018 for bits and pieces as well. In like 2018, he gets back to the U.S. Open final, loses to Djokovic, but he was obviously strong and seeing Federer a lot uh, down the stretch here in 2017. So in terms of a 36-year-old Roger Federer, who turned 36 in that post-Wimbledon stretch, I mean... You're going to sign for this. You look at what he did. Canada finals, Shanghai title. So you've got two masters there, a title at Basel. Uh, loses in the semis at the O2 in London, the ATP finals to Goffin, who got to the finals that year. But you, you're going to sign up for this. You like It's a good, solid feeling, I'm sure, going into 2018, knowing that A, he's healthy, first and foremost, and that he's still playing really good tennis down the stretch. Okay, he's not winning every single tournament, but that's not a reasonable expectation for him at this point. Without overworking the cliche, he's playing with house money, right? I disagree. I think, you know, once he comes back, I'm sure there there was doubt and questions going into 2017, like like what's this going to look like after the, the injuries of 2016? But to be able to come out in 2017 and set the tone early and win two majors in the first six months of the year, it's no longer house money. It's the belief of I'm still one of the best players in the world and I want to win every time I'm on the court. So it's not, you know, it doesn't have that. Yeah, he had come back from injury, but it's not just using Andy Murray as a comparison. Murray's really thought his career might be over. I don't think Federer was at that point, at least, at least if he was, he wasn't public about it. So I wouldn't, like, I think he was like locked in, like he's okay. I'm 36, but I'm still trying to win these, win these tournaments. I'll sign up for that answer every day of the week. <laughs> so 2018 Australian open, that is the 20th grand slam 
been a while. It actually feels like a longer, there's so much life has happened just in, in this year alone that 2018 Australian Open feels like eons ago. Before we look at the path and the match, some of the highlights from the, the final, uh, Roger's look, the white shirt with the pink and black diagonal stripe, what say you? I like it. It's a clean look. I, I like any kind of striping. You get that old school, like almost imperial look to it. Uh, sharp, clean. And also this is pretty much the final days with Nike. Um, early 2018, that's when the Nike contract was coming to an end. And it was Wimbledon 2018 when he walked on the court wearing Uniqlo. Uh, so this is the last uh, major final where we see Roger and Nike. At least he's still wearing Nike shoes, but at least a, a Nike full kit. This is somewhat tongue in cheek, but like the the switch, do you think that was like a bad omen? No, I think it was. Let's make a whole lot of money. I'm kind of like using the whole like Nadal superstition thing, right? Like, could you imagine? Could you imagine taking a label off of one of his bottles and then asking him to go play? It's one of those right. things. No, that's a valid point. Like a comfort thing. Yeah, I'm going to assume, always dangerous, that you know he's not just a regular guy switching from one piece of, of gear to another. Like if Uniqlo is going to make the investment in him, he's not going to just do it blindly. We've seen this with players where they'll go and wear something that's different because they're getting paid to do it and they wind up not liking it. Um, but I would think he was essentially able to call his shots at Uniqlo and they're not some fly by night operation. I mean, it's a major global corporation clothing company. They know what they're doing. Um, so I'm sure a lot of what they were doing, uh, played well to Roger. I'm sure he gave his feedback, but I, I don't think that it certainly hasn't hurt his tennis. At least I don't think so. Okay. Roger's path. A lot of new names. You might have to coach me through some yeah. of this. And this is, um, before we do it, it's very similar to Wimbledon of 2017. This is like one final gift from the tennis gods for Roger. I mean, this is a pretty, pretty smooth draw. Yeah, on both sides, and and we'll go through it, but it also is sort of like, it's sort of emblematic of the fact that he's kind of, he's played through three different tennis generations, if you will, and this is sort of like this new generation or these new names are sort of emerging here. You've got in the first round... Uh, Aliash Bedene. Thank you. I knew, yes. there's going to be at least three times where you saved me here. Ranked 51, 343. Uh, I'm going to recite all the sets here just to make a point at the very end that he didn't drop a set until the final. Jan Leonard Struff, did I get that so right? So Jan Leonard Struff is an interesting guy because he is. I always think he looks like a soccer player. Like he's got like a like a big chest. He he's not like a he's not he's in shape obviously, but he just doesn't have this like lanky wiry build that you see a lot of these tennis players have. He is one of maybe the best example of a late bloomer right now on tour, not to a Federer level, but he's somebody who's played really well over the last two years. So this is kind of right at the start of where he, he really began to climb. Um, like this was the best he had ever done at a major up to this point, like just getting to the second round. And here's a guy who was almost 28 years old at the time. So he's in his mid to late twenties and he hadn't really had anything to show for it. Last couple of years though, he has really put together uh, some quality results last year. He got, or excuse me, this little bit later this year, in 2018, Miami, he gets to the semifinals. Like he's just a bit of a late bloomer. Next round, Richard Gasquet, familiar face. Um, he was ranked 31 in this tournament. Roger handled him 2-5-4. Next was Martin Fucevic. Fucevic. 
ranked 80, 462. He's in the draw as well, right? He'll be playing in the U.S. Open. I believe so. Yeah, he's a like he had a very promising uh, junior career. Yeah, and he's been, you know, on, on the main, excuse me, on the main tour. Um, that levels of success have not come, but this is a nice little uh, result just to get to this point um, at a major, for furthest he'd ever been at a major at this point. First time he ever won a match, I think, at a major was this trip to the fourth round. Tomas Burdick, of course, a familiar name as well, ranked 20. Roger handled him 6-3-4. Some of these later matches with Burdick, there's some clips in in putting this together of Burdick just sitting on his chair, you know, in between changeovers, just shaking his head in complete dismay and shock that Roger's elevated his level of play against him despite the years that we keep talking about. It's one of those things that we've talked about for 20 episodes now. There are certain players that when they play against Roger, that are amazing, incredible players, but when they play against Roger, they just look, they look like a shell of themselves almost. Yeah, well, Burdick also knew the score of their head-to-head, and this was the ninth consecutive match that he had lost to Federer going back uh, six or seven years. Remember, he beat Roger at Wimbledon 2010, yeah. and that ended the Federer run of Wimbledon finals. Burdick is, was a... You know, if you drew up a tennis player physically, as we said, like he he's your guy just in terms of the physical gifts. But just when it comes to like those pressure moments, the fetters of the world would just be able to figure that out. Burdick, of course, has never won a Grand Slam to date. He retired last year, so that's going to continue. Wow. He's a name that has come up in- invariably, you know, oh, most, yeah. most he, he, of the episodes that we've done. So it's it's crazy just to think that he's always in the... Th- in the running, but like never the difference between again, greatness and, you know, supremacy of the sport. He's another guy. Um, when we talk about the, how many would they win if there were, if this was not the Federer, Nadal, Djokovic generation, certainly a and couple. you've got to think Burdick would have two or three majors. You would think, um, if not for those guys, but it's the world we live in. It's wild. Next, Yon Chung. Ranked 58, read somewhere also that he was unranked, but maybe that was that was for purposes of the- Unseated seed. in the tournament, yeah. Okay, got it. He was unseated. He retired in the third set, but to that point, to get to a semifinal, player ranked as high as 19 at one point. He's now 24 years old, became the first South Korean player to advance past the fourth round of a Grand Slam. He beat Djokovic in straight sets to get to the semifinal. Something no one had done, I read, since 2007. Um, One-hit wonder tournament for Chung, Brian, or is he a contender? Uh, Neither in that, yes, he's a contender, if if those are the two options. But he's just, he's not had good luck with injuries. Um, They've kept him off tour for a good part of 2018 and then a good part of 2019. So it's, it's just been unfortunate luck for Chung. I mean, he's a guy when they started doing the next gen finals for like these rising stars at the end of the year, they, the first year was 2017. He won the first ever next gen finals and beat Andre Rublev in the final. Rublev's a, a very good player. Now the guy who won the next gen finals, 2018 Stefano Tsitsipas, who I just said, we're probably going to see him in the semifinals of the U S open Yannick Sinner won the next gen finals last year. He's somebody I know we spoke about a few episodes ago when you asked me, you know, who's got the chance to be like the next out of these young guys, like to be world number one, and the consensus, or uh, at least the majority of people, seem to think that 
center is the guy who's got the best chance to be number one. So, I mean, Chung is a player. It's just the body is not cooperated. Hmm. Uh, by the way, I don't think you said, who do you like for the U.S. Open? Djokovic hasn't lost a match in 2020. Um, obviously, there was no match to play for a while. And he doesn't look like he's missed anything so far. But, I mean, going to land every U.S. Open for the last probably six, seven years, I've said Djokovic is the favorite. and He's won a few of those. He hasn't won every one. But there's no better hardcore player in the world right now. So in a hardcore major, I, you go with uh, with what brought you, essentially. And I, I just, until somebody beats him, I can't see him losing. If you had to pick a runner-up, who would it be? Um, I would say Daniil Medvedev, because if Djokovic is the best hardcore player in the world, Medvedev might be second or third. Um, Medvedev had this, just this unbelievable run last summer where he basically didn't lose on hard courts, except for the Montreal final where he was thrashed by Nadal and then lost to Nadal in the U.S. Open final. And he came back from two sets down to force it to five and lost there. Um, And he kept on winning. So Medvedev has established himself at the top of the sport right now. We'll see about, you know, the, the layoff and if that's going to affect him. But I, I think those two are, are the class of the field going in. Hmm. I became a fan of his, that final against Nadal. I was blown away that he came back and he was managing all of the, the quote unquote delays of game. You know, it's funny because looking at um, the Cincinnati tournament that's going on right now, as we sit here and record this two players who we've just talked about, uh, Aliash Bedene, Medvedev beat him. And then Medvedev lost in the quarters to uh, somebody else we just spoke about, Roberto Bautista Agut, um, who got tennis Sandgren in the first round of the U.S. Open. So, I mean, okay, you, it's interesting to see. Like, I, I think it's almost a blessing to lose a quarterfinal this week just so you're not playing all the way through to Sunday. And you give yourself – like, you get some matches under your belt. You get some points. You get some money and all that good stuff. But then you're able to just – okay, I got used to the conditions. I got used to these new courts, this new surface they're using this year, which is apparently faster. And now I'm going to be able to lock it in for the U.S. Open. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. Chilich's path. Again, lots of new names, Brian, except for Nadal. Vasek Popisil? Pospisil. He's, um, he's somebody else who's had really bad luck with injury. He's a, a talented Canadian player. Um, but he had really... Uh, big trouble with his back. Um, so that is obviously going to be a big problem when you're playing uh, tennis, but he qualified here, uh, gave Chilich a tough match. Like, he's been a very good player, Pospisil, when when he can be on court. But And it seems like the back stuff is, is sort of behind him, no pun intended. So hopefully it uh, continues that way. Sousa in the second round, Ryan Harrison, Busta, and then Nadal, who was ranked one and retired in the fifth set. What happened? It happens, especially for Nadal. We've talked about how injuries have been an issue for him before and hard court fifth set. It was something, I don't know if we ever got like a firm answer, but it was like upper leg, like the groin area and he just couldn't move. And we talked last time about Chilich, ironically of all people in the Wimbledon final against Federer the year earlier and how, you know, you're not going to retire if you're not going to do damage to yourself, but if you can't move and it's like a, a leg muscular injury, that's a situation where you could be doing damage to yourself. So the decision almost gets made for you and it stinks because it's a major and it's a semifinal and you want all the good things, but it just 
wasn't able to happen for for Nadal. This tournament in particular, there was some concern and uh, consternation over like the conditions and stuff. And I'll ask you about that. We'll talk about it when we actually talk about the final because it was unique in terms of timing. So after Nadal, of course, he beats Kyle Edmund to get to the final. What happened to Rafa and Novak? We just kind of mentioned Rafa, you know, with the injury in the fifth set. The quarterfinal lineup, the complexion is starting to change a little bit. It's Nadal, Chilich, Dimitrov, Edmund, Sangren, Chung, Burdick, and Federer. A lot of new names. Novak was ranked 14 this tournament, which, I mean, just looking back at this, I didn't dive into his tournament draw, but felt like he was coming off of an injury. Is that why he had the low ranking or he hadn't been playing? Yeah. Basically with, you know, how 2017 was just a really challenging year for him. So all those points he had to defend, we talked about just the the point system in tennis, where if you win the tournament, then the following year, you basically have to win it again. Otherwise you're going to lose those points. So not playing and not winning as much in 2017 meant a whole lot of points came off of Djokovic's ranking. Um, but he still wasn't right here. Like he was beaten in straight sets by Chung when he took him out in the fourth round. So he's still figuring it out. And that's something that, as we talk about these couple of years, it's really remarkable just how sort of in the wilderness Djokovic was at this point, but now how much he's really been able to solve whatever the issues were physically, mentally, on court, off court. And he has turned himself back into this guy who just mows through draws again. And I think that sort of reset is really impressive. So Djokovic, remember we talked 2016, he just completed the career grand slam, but was starting, you know, it's just like, what, what happens next? Like you've reached the top of the mountain. He had split with his team. Andre Agassi had come into the camp. So he's back here and theoretically he should have been playing better, but the ranking had fallen because of the time he had spent off the tour. So he loses the chunk. Then he goes out and gets elbow surgery. So more surgery for Djokovic, more medical stuff. Um, so he's off the tour for a couple months tries to come back for the hardcourt masters in the U S Indian Wells in Miami. That doesn't go well, but then he gets back with kind of his, his guru, Marion Vida, who's been with him the longest in terms of the coaching setup and they get on the clay and Djokovic just kind of gets going from there and he wins Wimbledon and it's much better as the, then wins the U S open. Hmm. Different outcome. If he makes it past Chung or you think the conditions favored Roger for this tournament? Um, no, I, I don't think it's a different outcome because I just don't think Djokovic was playing anything close to like his best tennis. Do you think even at this point that it takes Djokovic's best to beat Roger? Um, it takes a much better performance than, than what he gave here. Okay. Like he's just not like, he just did not look right. Um, you, you lose in straight, like Chung is a, a, is a very good player and he was on the ascendancy here, but he loses to him in straight sets. Like it's one of those tournaments. A lot of times you can you can look at a guy first round, second round, even third round, and okay, they're getting through it, but they don't look comfortable. And that's that was like this era of Djokovic tennis, where first round, he no problem with Donald Young. Then he gets Malfis, loses a set, but he gets through in four. Then Ramos Vignolas, like he's winning, but it's not like, it just didn't look, it, it still wasn't all the way there. Right. It's one of it's the not, things, you know it when you see it, and exactly. it just wasn't there. The body language says a lot. You're absolutely right, especially early early in the tournament. I've always thought that when you see those early tournament struggles as sort of a player kind of going through their own personal 
gauntlet to get to prime themselves for the final, at least with Roger, with respect to Roger, whenever he struggled early and he's made it through to the final, I've kind of always looked back on that earlier match as like the tipping point, if you will. Um, yeah, but that can also work the other way where it's, there's truth to what you just said, but it's not, it can go the other way in that, oh, okay, they got the rust out. They worked the kinks out. Uh, they got some match testing, just some match sharpness, and now they go from there. So it, it can break either way. Like you can almost find whatever you want to find in that. Like where if somebody, you know, gets pushed to a fifth set or just doesn't look great, you think, oh, that was the one where they got the rust out. But then if they go out and lose two rounds later, it's, oh yeah, you could see that uh, four days ago with what happened. So it's both, there's evidence for both essentially. You know, it reminds me actually of that whole notion of like Shaq back in the day where he wouldn't work out in the off season. And he would say, I, I will, I don't know if he would say, but everybody around him would say, that he's playing himself back into shape, right. like he'll be ready for the playoffs. Is that even possible in tennis? Can you play your way into a tournament? Like, does that is that a mindset that even is applicable? Yes and no. You play yourself into mental shape, but you can't play yourself into physical shape. Like, if you show up, like, out of shape, like Shaq would show up to training camp, like you're not. that's not going to work because everybody's in shape in tennis. But you can play yourself into, you can be like, okay, I need, I need matches. Like you need to get just those match points, the match tension, um, just the adrenaline that all that produces. Yes, you can play yourself into that kind of shape. You can't play yourself into the other kind of shape. The mental piece, I love that. That's true. Like we're getting in those situational moments early so that you're ready for it as the tournament progresses, break chances and stuff like that. The final, Brian. It was a night final, which is rare was there anything to it other than temperature or no they started doing the night final some years ago in australia really yeah i mean maybe they started a little bit later so part of the intrigue of this final was that there was a roof component and the temperature outside was it was inordinately hot this whole fortnight but inside for the final it was unusually cool and there was some concern or not concern, but like there was some discussion about like, who does that favor? Who does that benefit in this final? And part of the reason it went five sets, some have said, is because of this attribution to like the climate or like the, the controlled environment of the inside. Um, and so I just made a note here about like, what was unique about this being a night final that maybe changed the dynamic? Would it have been a straight set victory for Federer? had it been outside, that kind of a thing. Yeah, I don't know if it'd be straight sets, but the cooler conditions don't really help him in that with the back, like cooler, but it's never going to be cold, cold. It'll be cooler, but you know, it's just harder. It's like Tiger Woods now with golf when he has like an early morning tea time and it's cool. Like that's a problem because it takes a while to get his body going. Federer's not obviously had the same injury challenges as Tiger Woods, but it is a like it's another thing to adjust to. There was a Hemsworth in the audience. I'm not very good at delineating between my Hemsworths, so I just pointed the name out. Not as ruckus of a crowd as I would have imagined for Rogers' potential 20th Grand Slam. Ruckus in the sense of like the who's who, but I feel like maybe Australia had something to do with that. Um, no, I think it's just that it's not Nadal that he's playing against. Like everybody loves Federer, but it's Federer again. Like it's not 
Like you, you lose, I mean, Marin Chilich is a great player. This is his second major final in the last three majors. Um, but he doesn't, he's not as the British people say, he's not, he's not box as box office as like Nadal Federer. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a major final, but it's just a little bit different. So this was a five setter, uh, back and forth until the fifth set. Federer later admitted nerves extra that he had to wait around for the match all day. That was, I guess, part of the whole it being a night match thing. The key moment that I noted for the match was the fifth set. Roger serves first, and Chilich gets two break points, but can't convert. And Roger screams out of his mind on both holds. We kind of went through the lexicon of his screams last episode. But he wins it after a long rally that Chilich challenges. Chilich challenges this, and he also challenges match point. It's just like the second year in a row that that happened, or the second Grand Slam final in a row that happened to Roger. But this was Marin's shot, that first game of the fifth set. He collapsed after that, and Roger goes up 5-1 to serve it out. Gets three championship points, gets it on the first one, starts celebrating prematurely because he didn't even pay attention to Chilichu. Challenged it, but he painted the line on that last point, game, set, match. The note that I made there, Brian, was if that was his last shot, so to speak, his last Jordan against the Utah Jazz, it's a hell of a shot because it touched the line. When I say painted, I mean literally it touched the line by like a millimeter. If you spend your whole career or when you're coming up as a tennis player and if you're practicing painting the lines, what better way to win your 20th Grand Slam than to do it with like a textbook shot like that? Agree, but a lot of ifs there. And that wasn't what that was. Like he, he came back. He kept, he kept on playing. I mean, he did not, he's not to this point won another major. Um, has not gotten back to the Australian Open final. He lost the following year to Tsitsipas and then uh, pretty handily to Djokovic this year in 2020. The thing that really jumps out is losing that Wimbledon final in 2019 to Djokovic when he had the match points and couldn't put it away. So yeah, there's a lot of, there. it would have been cinematic to walk off like that, but he didn't walk off. I'm not saying he should have, but it's just another chapter in the story. The speech, seven Australian Open Grand Slam finals, six titles, first man to win 20 Grand Slams. They say, before they hand him the microphone, from Switzerland, but loved all over the world. He cracks right there, if you notice. Rod Laver did not hand him the trophy. He was a spectator only. Any reason or thoughts on that? Um, oftentimes, the person who hands him the trophy is a, a head of the federation. Yeah. Um, somebody like that on hand. Um, Maybe Rod Laver didn't want to try to put himself into the moment too much. Usually, I know at the U.S. Open, when they give the prize money right on court, it's somebody from one of the big tournament sponsors, like from J.P. Morgan or something. So that's always a fun touch when the player gets a check for $2 million in a little envelope. I, I would guess that's, that's what it was. It's like Rod Laver, you know, it, he speaks for himself. Like his name's on the building. Um, he's right there. Federer named a, a tournament after him. So I, I don't think... He also needs to do that part. That's my read on it, at least. Um, I was going to ask if you think there's ever going to be, like, a, if a court's ever going to be named after Pete Sampras or Andre Agassi. 
is it or is it is it always going to be Ash and Armstrong? Um, I think at the U.S. Open, you would do like they're not going to change Arthur Ashe is Arthur Ashe. Like that's not getting changed. Louis Armstrong, it's like one of those quirks. You know, we talked about how Roland Garros was not a tennis player, but a, a French pilot in the First World War. Yeah. You know, Louis Armstrong's a jazz musician, but he just happened to live right near the site. So they named it after him and then they kept his name on it for the new building. I would think if they did another name you know the whole the whole comp a rod laver arena right i would think they would do like an like an althea gibson um just because of the trailblazing aspect of her career and her life as a black woman um you know they obviously have the entire uh, tennis center is billy jean king hmm. so they've got a lot of names on things i don't and then it also gets to a point where if you're not naming the main stadium after that court like is it really a like if you're naming like the fourth court after somebody, like is that really recognized? Like it's just kind of like, huh? Yeah, yeah. Like like someone like Serena Williams, for example, it's got to be center court or just don't even right. bother. Like yeah, exactly. Like she's not a court four player. I mean, no disrespect to anybody who plays on those courts, but she's the center court player. So Roger's speech, he holds it together until the very end. Uh, breaks down when he finally thanks his team. He's as emotional as he was after winning his first Grand Slam. It's really quite amazing. Uh, he's so stoic and so controlled when he plays. Part of that is it's no wonder that he gets a little release at the end. But I almost saw this as full circle. I, I think that was his last Grand Slam. I think that was it. I think it's going to end at 20 for him. I would be pleasantly surprised. I would obviously love to do a number 21 of this with you. But I really, you know, sometimes you just know. Like we, I mentioned Jordan and you countered me with, you know, Roger kept playing. Jordan went to the Wizards, you know, and Jordan played, uh, had some great moments with the Wizards, you know, made an all-star game. But nobody remembers that. Nobody talks about that. I think, you know, I think this was it. And part of that release at the end, I think, was reflective of that. I'm not going to say that he had, like, planned to, like, that he understood the stakes, but I do see it now looking back when I watch this again. Number 19 he was very sort of thoughtful and careful to thank everybody more so than he'd ever done before. Um, and he came back and he did it again and he won 20. He was a little less eloquent this time. It was more, he was really trying to like not cry. I think he really didn't want to cry at the end, but I think the weight of this, uh, I think the way of this got to him. And, and it, it, I've said this at least half a dozen times on this podcast. He's not an eloquent speech giver, but, these are human moments that I can totally sort of appreciate and relate to. Like he just won his 20th Grand Slam. The guy just said from Switzerland, but loved all over the world. Like that's heavy stuff, you know, fair. Yeah, it's fair. But I also don't think it's like, I think he just knows that there are fewer of these moments in front of him than there are behind him. Like he's not So you saying, don't think he's done. You don't, you don't think in his mind, he's like, well, this is no, it's an interesting point though, Vic, because we're talking, are you talking now as you sit here in August 2020? Or are you talking about January 2018? Because it's two and a half years. I think he he like it's a good point. I don't think he's done. I don't think he's done right now, but I, I have a hard time seeing him win another major, like as we sit here in August of 2020. Sitting here in January of 2018, could you see him winning another major? Yeah. And I mean, he had a great chance to do it at Wimbledon the following year and he had match points in the final and just couldn't convert. So, I mean, he's like, I don't think he knows at this point that he's done, but he knows that, Hey, I've like 
every day is special at this point. Like how many more of these opportunities am I going to get? So I think that's why you saw the emotion and all that came with it. Well said. Context. First male player to win at least six titles at two different Grand Slams, like you said. World number one, grand total of 310 weeks. Year end number one, which is something that you taught me about and how important that is. Five times, four in a row. We've gone through eight Wimbledons, Brian, six Australian Opens, five U.S. Opens, and one French Open. This is more of a prediction, I guess, for you than context. But how will history remember this achievement? It's going to be, you know, one of the greatest careers of all time. I think it's a number that is is going to be passed uh, by Nadal and perhaps Djokovic as well. But, you know, Nadal's number is always going to be looked at differently because it's going to be so heavily tilted towards Roland Garros. Not that that shouldn't count, but it's you have a very unique surface and that's where he's done more than half of his damage to this point. Uh, and Djokovic's is going to be just as impressive, if not more. But, you know, we talk a lot about consistency and we talked about Djokovic had some quiet lulls. Federer, his lulls were when he was a lot older and injuries were playing a role. Um, I mean, history's going to remember this as one of the greatest careers we've ever seen by an athlete. The fact that he's playing towards the top level of the game for looks like about 20 years at this point. I mean, that's remarkable. We never see that in this sport where, you know, guys usually start early. Okay, they've started later as in recent years, but they retire early. I mean, Andy Roddick was 31 when he retired. Federer, almost 10 years later, is still out here as a threat. Um, so he's going to be remembered as one of the greatest athletes of all time, and I think that's the, the rightful place. I love the distinction you made between tennis players of all time versus athletes of all time. I don't think it could be said any better than that. After Australian Open 2018, you kind of have nicely segued for me one last time. There's this whole notion of, you know, would he be asking this question, can I win again now versus then? He kept playing. He played a bunch of tournaments, wins Rotterdam, beating Dimitrov, loses Indian Wells to Del Potro, uh, makes it to the final though. Um, loses the Miami Masters, the round of 64 to qualifier Tanasi Kokonakis. Did I get that yes. right? Thank you. Tanasi Kokonakis, yes. Uh, wins at Stuttgart, the grass tournament, beating Rajonic, um, but loses at Halle to Borna Chorich. Loses Wimbledon 2018 quarterfinal to a surging Kevin Anderson. That was an epic match, to say the least. Well over four hours, a five-setter. Um, Loses the Cincinnati Masters final to Djokovic. Again, still banging away at these finals. But then loses the U.S. Open round of 16 to John Millman in a three and a half hour match. He did beat Kyrgios in the earlier round in a quick straight sets. Any memory or recollection from this round of 16 outing for Federer against Millman? Yeah, as we sit here talking about it, I'm sweating because that was the hottest and most humid night I've ever been through in my life. And if you look at a picture of what Roger was wearing there, I mean, that was the big headline from this match that Roger Federer was sweating because, you know, he that was famous. Like, he never looked visibly sweaty. I mean, by the time this match ended, and John Millman's one of the hardest working guys on tour, so those were certainly his conditions. But these guys had been through the absolute ringer. It was so strange because normally at night, it cools off. 
And it just didn't this night. The heat just hung around. It was like trapped in the stadium. And it was just like sweltering in there. And Millman got the better of it. Plenty of other tournaments in between here, but jumping ahead to some Grand Slams of note. 2019 Australian Open out in the round of 16 to Sissipas. My Zoom background is Federer in that 19 Australian Open. This was against Dan Evans. Oh, wow. So this is, okay, perfect. We've come full circle there. Uh, 2019 French Open. He's out in the semifinals to Nadal, but he played the French Open, which is surprising unto itself. Any insights on why he played this tournament in the first place? Because I think he knew these were like the final opportunities. I, I will, my theory I, this is a theory. I think the plan was to wind it down after the Olympics in Tokyo of 2020, like play in Tokyo. He would play this upcoming U S open in a normal year. And then he would, I, I always, I always say like he retire in Basel, like that'll be his last tournament. Um, and Basel's in the fall. So that's, I think he was like, let's just set it up, do a do a big tour over the next two years, let's say. And just not like he's going to make it a farewell tour where they come out and have a big presentation, but just where he can at least play and fans can see him. And I think this was the start of that. Like, I'm going to get back on clay. I'm going to play the clay, uh, the clay masters events. I'm going to play the French open and then wind it down. I think he had a finish line in sight. And obviously with everything that's happened this year, I wonder how that's been affected. Um, But yeah, I think this was a nod towards, completing the career by touching all the bases. Agreed. Maybe it just got pushed forward another year. You have all that time to recover, but you've also aged. Like there's that, right. there's this diminishing returns thing happening. No matter how much time you get to recover, it's still, it's got to be paradoxical for someone like him, who again, he's not necessarily trying to play to win. Yeah, you are at this point, but there's a little bit of truth to what you said in that he also does want to just go out there and play for the fans one more time. Yes. And you bring up an interesting point and it's on my mind because Bob and Mike Bryan just announced uh, earlier this week that they are officially retired and their plan was to always retire after this U S open, but they shut it down. Now they played world team tennis and that's it. I think they're going to keep playing world team tennis in the future, but they had said a big part of their decision to just do it now was there's not going to be fans at the U S open. So who knows what the next year to 18 months in terms of tennis are going to look like where is this concept of like a farewell tour is it as appealing if there aren't fans in the stands wow so i think that is something um i guess you'd always thought about it but hearing bob and mike Bryan say it um makes you realize like yeah that is absolutely a thing to consider 100 percent. i didn't even wow part of the federer experience brian is the fans is the crowd after every point in between points that's like that's a huge like that's his part of his package absolutely i mean just the buzz at a tournament site you know when you watch any kind of event you'll see the start of the match a lot of times seats are empty because people are out getting a bite to eat getting a drink but there's like at a tournament there's just this buzz in the air when federer is going to be on court and you don't see those empty seats. Like everybody, you want to see him walk on. You want to hear his name get announced. Like it's the the rituals that go with it are a huge part of the experience. And that's going to be different. Wow. 2019 Wimbledon beat Nadal in the semis to face Djokovic in the final. Uh, coming up short, uh, that's an understatement, but it's a five-hour, five-setter. Well, it's the first one with a tiebreaker. Um, 
first Wimbledon final in the fifth set because they never had just look at the match. He lost to Kevin Anderson the year earlier. Um, they had instituted a tie break because matches like that just wind up hurting everything else down the road. The player who wins, I mean, how are you fit to then turn it back around like two days later um, and play again? Mm-hmm. So they instituted a tie break at 12 all get to 12 all and Djokovic wins the tie break. I mean, I say that like it's a very routine, easy thing, but um, that's what happened. Uh, just how Federer had the match points. Um, but by that point, the match points were gone. It once they got to the tie break. So it's like the wind was just out of the sails. It's a wild Wimbledon final for a couple of reasons. Obviously the first of which is that, here he is toe to toe with Djokovic, who is, you know, bested him more times than any other player. But it's, it boggles the mind that he, he had the match points. He had the match and he's in a final against Djokovic and it could have gone either way. Even though he lost, it's still a tremendous sort of, you know, it speaks to that whole 31 total Grand Slam finals. Like that's, I don't know the number of for Djokovic. I don't know the number for Nadal off the top of my head. I don't have it prepared for, for this. But do you see them eclipsing that 31 Grand Slam finals? Um, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Am I making that a bigger number than it is? No, you're not making it a bigger number than it is. But I think it's not, he's not, like it's an unreal number, but he's not as far and away ahead of those other two as yeah. you would think. I mean, I just looked up Djokovic. He's got 26. Grand Slam it's finals. The, yeah, finals. So I mean, I, I could I could see Djokovic getting to five more major finals um, in his career. So I like, yeah, they're all crazy numbers, but I don't think it's like unassailable. We've talked about some of the numbers that I think are like the semifinal streak, the quarterfinal streak that are to me some of the most impressive stuff we've ever seen from Federer. Uh, Nadal's got twenty seven major finals. So yeah, it's well within. I'm gonna say well within, but it's very feasible for those two. The final two Grand Slams that Roger's been part of uh, pre-pandemic was the 2019 U.S. Open out in the quarterfinals to Dimitrov. Up two sets to one. Up two sets to one. Thank you. A lot of chatter after that. The changing of the guard, if you will. Again, I I know you don't like the house money analogy, but I feel like, and you're actually, by, by saying what you said, you're actually doing a service to him because there's some criticisms from certain people, certain camps that he's just hanging around. And, um, right. He's not hanging around. He's actually in the second week of all of these tournaments and not just the second week in many instances, he's in the finals. So exactly. Like, does it make financial sense for him to keep playing tennis? Yes. Does he have business interests kind of off the court on the court? Like that are going to, he's going to make a lot of money from after his career. Yes. Do all those things benefit from him playing? Yes. But by no means is he out there just to cash a check. Um, both of those things can be true. Like he's making it financially advantageous for him to play, but he's not doing it. Like he's not doing himself a disservice by being on the court. It's an interesting thought that you just brought up. It's financially advantageous for him to play. Okay. But let's look at that for a second. If you look at his earnings on the court, they pale in comparison to the earnings off the court. And he's already proved everything to the world what he can do and what he is and who he is on the court. So what does playing, how does playing actually help his off the court stuff right now that appreciably? Like, right, I feel like all the sponsors are already in place, all the brand building, legacy building, 
mogul stuff is already, the wheels are already in motion for that. To me, to my mind, I feel like him playing right now is less about money and more to, you know, him going out on his terms. I'm going to play tennis because I actually want to play tennis. I'm not doing this for a tournament check. I'm not doing this for adulation. I'm doing this because I love what I do and I'm still good at it. No, I agree with you 100%, but it's still like, yeah, he's playing because he wants to play. I mean, he could have walked away 10 years ago and he'd be set for life. Um, he's playing because he loves the sport and wants to play. He he likes the family setup they have or the, the travel has worked out well. They've found a situation that works for them with the kids. But it's like it's he's still making money. Like he's making a lot of money by playing. He's making more money by playing. The spotlight is still on. Yeah, he's in the spotlight. Like, and I agree with you. He's He doesn't need to play. Um, would he be out here playing for free? No, I'm not saying that either. Um, but he doesn't need to play, but he's playing because he wants to, but he's making more money by playing than he would otherwise. No, I get it. There was an interesting thing with all the social justice stuff happening with the NBA. Part of the reason they decided to come back and play was when the spotlight is on you and you have the logo behind you, it just carries more weight. And it's the same thing. If you're in the arena, if you're at these tournaments, there's press, there's ancillary stuff that just agree yeah it's you have the benefit of the big stage the big platform and the spotlight on you um final grand slam that roger's been a part of was the 2020 australian open yes there was a grand slam this year uh it's amazing to say that we're talking about a match in 2020 right now just for the purposes and context of this podcast we've been living in the past out in the semifinals to djokovic again making it all the way, you know, to the final four, if you will. But he lost in just over two hours. My note here is there's a stark contrast between the five-setter at Wimbledon, the five-hour match against Novak, if you will, to the two-hour match. What conclusion can you draw from that? Well, he was hurt. Uh, He had hurt his groin, I think it was, earlier in the tournament. So he wasn't at his peak. And we talk about one of his his big matches, his big wins in this was Tennis Sangren. We talked about Sangren earlier. Sangren had, I think, seven match points at different stages of their match. I forget if it was the round of 16 or the quarterfinals. That was a, uh, yeah, it was a quarterfinal to get to the semis. I mean, this biggest win of Tennis Sangren's life on his racket seven times, couldn't put it away. So Federer, just to survive that, is an achievement in and of itself. And I think whatever injury he was carrying combined with the the baggage from that Sangren win, it was going to make, I mean, this was Djokovic, lethal Djokovic at this Australian Open. Um, so I think it was just going to be a, a tall order for him. Okay. Brian, we have hopefully respectfully done service to Roger's legendary career. We sought out to do just his 20 grand slam championships but we've invariably always gone back and looked at some of the other highlights and matches along the way i thought a nice way to sort of close the book on this project would be to do a little podcast look back end cap if you will so i sent you a bunch of different prompts a bunch of different categories thought we could go through them uh maybe relive some of the relivings if you will before we sign off okay so the first category is best championship well what's funny is the best final he played in maybe the two best finals he played in he lost in uh wimbledon 2008 and wimbledon 2019 as we just talked about to nadal and Djokovic. 
I will say based on what this is, see, this is tough just because of the different, I'll get you off the hook because yeah, the pin me down. Yeah. The first question is what was your favorite, you know, one of the 20 that we covered. And then the next question is what are your top three? What are your top three Roger Federer finals? And if you don't want to name the crown jewel, name your top three most memorable. So I will say most memorable, uh, 2009 Wimbledon to survive Roddick and to win that match, get back on top after the heartbreak of the year before. That's one. I will say French Open 2009, complete the career Grand Slam, win the one that eluded him. And then I will also say Australia 2017 to beat Nadal in a five-set final almost five years after his last major title. Those are the three to me that really jump out. So I've got... Like significance. Yes, absolutely. I've got the 2017 Australian Open as my first. The comeback slam, the opponent. I might never have picked that one if we hadn't just gone through all of them for this podcast. But I remember being more affected rewatching this one than any other. So I went with it. That was my number one. Um, And then the other two that stood out to me for a couple of different reasons, but mostly just a leading with emotion here the Wimbledon 2007, when he beat Nadal and the way he won it, the overhead slam. And then again, benefiting from a little bit of hindsight, how important beating him then was, because as we know, it became increasingly more of a grind for him against him and and the importance of it, just sort of like as far as legacy. uh, I think we talked about it like that. The Wimbledon 2007 cemented his legacy in a way that I don't think other Grand Slam finals would have or could have. Um, And then the other one that I had for top three was Australian Open 2007, mostly because of the road. I think. Right. You know, he beat so, Gonzalez, Roddick, Robredo, and Djokovic in Yuzhny to get there. Well, for me, I was going to highlight Australia 2007 as well, not because of the road. Well, yes, because of the road, but how dominant he was. I mean, you could argue this is peak Federer. He won this tournament without dropping a set. This was the match um, where, remember, we listened to the Roddick press conference after losing four love and two. And Roddick was like, I got broken, then I got broken again, then I got broken a few more times. Like, that was this tournament. Like, this was just Federer at his absolute most dominant um, to get to a major title without dropping a set. So that one is, is special in my mind. What did you come up with for best championship point? So that's an interesting one as well. I think it's a lot of symmetry. His uh, first and last Wimbledon titles, at least to this date, uh, were won with the aces. So that, that's cool, a little symmetry. Um, but I'm going to say the iconic shot, and that's Wimbledon 2007, when he's in total control of the point. He's got Nadal wide, comes into net, pushes home this overhead winner. He's got the wide open court. Then he just falls to the knees. Fall, fell to the knees a lot. Um, so I'll go Wimbledon 2007. I'll give you a runner-up in Australia 2007, as we had just, uh, just talked about, and it's a kind of a nice punctuation on a dominant performance. He hits his absolute backhand laser and it just freezes Fernando Gonzalez in place. Like just nothing he can do about it. And it's just this signal of intent that like, I am the best player in the world. It's like getting dunked on like at the buzzer, like just to, to close it out like that. Those are the, the couple that jump into my mind. I love that you had a runner up cause I did too. Okay. Mine was the first U S open that he won 
just returning serve and the defense to offense. So there's a rally and he he's three or four feet behind the baseline and then he brings it up to the net and he just smashes a forehand winner. It was just, it was a full display championship point. I agree with that. I, I like that one a lot. My runner up is the backhand winner down the line against Gonzalez at the Australian Open. I can't say it any better than you did. Just the dominant sort of like, almost like ripping off your shirt. Like, yeah. The fact that it was with his backhand is just memorable. And in Gonzalez, to his credit, he just kind of like walked up to the net, like too good. That's how you're going to win a grand slam. Too good, bro. Exactly. Besides the 20 grand slams, Brian, what's the most impressive statistic for you? What stands out? You can even give me a couple. Uh the 23 consecutive slam semifinals, that should be no surprise to anybody who's been with us for all 20 episodes. Just the, the consistency to get to the last four 23 consecutive tournaments. I mean, that's more than five years worth of major tennis, and he's in the last four in every single one of them. That's remarkable. I was going to say also the 36 consecutive quarterfinals just to get to the last eight. But another one that jumped out at me, he won 24 consecutive finals uh, from 2003 to 2005, not all majors, obviously, but to win 24 finals in a row, that's pretty good. For me, it was pretty simple, pretty uh, pedestrian, but it's the 310 total weeks at number one. Just like, yeah. I, you know, conceptually understood what it means to be number one, but you kind of gave me that education on the importance of finishing the year number one and, and sort of the, the, just the grind to get there. To be at that level for that long, for that sustained period amount of time is just, again, we're not going to do the GOAT comparison. We did it once. We're not going to do it again here because it's disingenuous. Nadal's not done and Djokovic is not done. And I think that's a conversation best saved for another time. But that 310 weeks at number one will definitely be one of the top three or four things that you talk about when you look back at Roger Federer. Yeah, that, that speaks to the, just the consistency that made his career what it is. Best outfit look. What do you have? I have, again, a couple. It was very hard to narrow these down. I like uh, the 2007 U.S. Open. That's the birth of Dark, Darth Federer, the All Black. Um, and I, I like the 2009 French Open when he finally won. He had that light blue top. But I would say my number one is a tournament he did not win, and that's the 2009 U.S. Open when he had the black top. Uh, with the red trim around the collar and the red like placket in the front. Uh, that, to me, was our, my three favorites. It's funny. I'll, I'll actually start with that U.S. Open. Um, I didn't give this to you as a category, but my favorite look of one of his opponents, actually, would be Del Potro in that tournament. His, his look, he looked like the kind of guy that was like, I am coming to beat Federer today. The most memorable opponent look for me, goes to him, that tournament. My best outfit look, no surprise probably, because I kind of told you this is what it would be. Um, it's 2017's Australian Open, the comeback slam. Yeah. Just because of the stakes, there's black on it, so he, it's, it's the, the Darth Federer sort of was rearing its head a little bit, but the stakes, the opponent, and then the stage of his career, to me, it was the most memorable. And then my runner-up was the 2007 US Open, close second. Darth Federer, obviously. Um, if my kid ever becomes a player of a, of any substance, or if he's a, if he has a match against whoever the best player in our, in our neighborhood rec center is, I'm going to have him don the Darth Federer look for good luck. 
It's also tough um, as we talk about this, and we generally agree. But you really only get three majors to work with here because, like a like, there's no fair drastic differences with the Wimbledon looks. I mean, we've certainly talked about the blazer and the sweater and some of the accoutrements that he wore on court at Wimbledon. Um, but those are, uh, you know, you can't really zero in on some of the Wimbledon outfits. No, no. Well, he had collar versus no collar, I think would be one of the, or did he always have a collar? That's a trivia question. Uh, one of the U S opens he won. He no, but, Wim- but Wimbledon, Wimbledon. Oh, Wimbledon. I think was Wimbledon always collar. Nike was always a collar. I want. I think Uniqlo. Like last year when he lost to Djokovic, I don't know if he had a collar. Okay. Next up, on our end cap here, best presser. And I picked a loss, and I think his best presser was one that was in a loss. I think I agree with you. Um, we're probably going to say the best, same one. By best, I mean most memorable, and that's when he just. Talked about Djokovic being lucky. Uh, 2011 U.S. Open. 2011 U.S. Open. And he just said, to play like that, like just so much anger and you, you can call it bitterness, like just steam coming out of his ears. He was so mad he had lost that match. That is absolutely my most memorable one. Definitely not a highlight in his career, but it's, it is, when we were talking about the Federer experience earlier, you know, we are talking about a human being. And we're used to seeing him on the other side of the ledger more often than not. Uh, this was a rare glimpse in, in what it feels like to, to feel like shit. Yeah. I will also, uh, just since we gave it a lot of attention on this, I have to one more time shout out uh, Nadal, Robin Soderling. So not Federer involved at all here, but Nadal definitely a highlight of this podcast for sure. Saying we, we will see what happens at the end of the life uh, about Robin Soderling where he wasn't happy with him. Uh, so that to me is... <laughs> One I'll always forget or remember. Do you remember, uh, I'm sure you remember this, uh, recently ESPN did, I don't know if it was ESPN or TNT, but they had two former players sit down and hash out their beef. So Kobe and Shaq sat down across from each other and their knees were pretty much touching. You had Magic and Isaiah sitting down next to each other and their knees were touching. I can't help but see that. Again, if you're doing like it, just, again, we're just having fun here, but 20 years down the line, and I know these guys are kind of, they've, they've emerged as friends and they do all these things, various things off court for each other, uh, each, you know, their respective foundations and they do these appearances and so on and so forth. You've obviously seen uh, Federer, you know, show up for Andy Roddick on a, in a lot of instances, but I can't help but wish for a Nadal Soderling sit down and a Federer Djokovic sit down. I'm talking about gray hair, old men stuff here. But uh, describing what you just described, I couldn't help but think of that moment with Shaq and, and Kobe. Yeah, I think it's different to individual sport against a team sport. Right. Uh, obviously, Shaq and Kobe teammates, Isaiah and Magic were not. Um, so there's some differences there. And I also think it's like these are this was a one-off thing with Nadal. I don't know how Nadal felt about Soderling, like how he feels about him right now. Like I, I doubt he's a, they're exchanging Christmas cards, but – like he probably doesn't think about him that much almost. <laughs> Whereas, you know, Djokovic and Federer, their names are going to be linked forever. So there's a lot more to unpack with those two. And it always, that was always just, it, it boils under the surface, like just under the surface. And then sometimes it'll flash out. Whereas Soderling and Dahl, the, these are fireworks. There's a little bit more psychology. There's a little bit more nuance to Federer Djokovic. So that one's interesting. Okay, I'm skipping uh, best speech because there isn't one. Uh, best, see what I did there? 
Best non-Grand Slam win. What do you got? So that's good. Um, I would also say Wimbledon 2012 was a very good speech uh, with the kids there. And it's when he talked about how Andy Murray was going to do it at some point. And then Murray beat him uh, or won his first major a few months later. Like it was just a cool moment. Um, Best non-major title, I will say two wins over Nadal. Miami in 2005, after Nadal had beaten him in their first ever meeting the year before, these were the days of five sets, Masters Finals. Federer comes back from two sets down, uh, survives a third set tiebreak, then he rolls from there. So he's got a big win over Nadal en route to the title. That was the final, rather. And then Madrid 2009 over Nadal, because this is when he had gotten schooled by Nadal in the French Open final the previous year, lost the Wimbledon epic to Nadal, lost the 09 Australian final to Nadal, the whole it's killing me, uh, to get a win on clay over Nadal, who I guess wasn't at his best because he went out and lost in the French Open, who knows, but to get a win on clay over Nadal at that point, I think it was a huge boost for Roger going into what was his only uh, triumphant French Open. I've got two. I cheated a little because there's one match that just kept sticking out. Uh, was in a Grand Slam. So I have a Grand Slam win, but it was before he had ever won a single slam when he beat Pete Sampras. I think looking back, that match just sort of yeah. just changed. It just At it was a Wimbledon 01. Yes. It was a true one of those defining sport moments of uh where were you when? Obviously you didn't know you didn't think of him then the way we think of him now. But when you look back at like drawing sort of, you know, the dots of his career, I think that's dot number one. Yeah, I agree with that. I just thought we were going finals only. Like yeah, I cheated. Titles only, but, but I agree. I agree with that. To stay with the prompt, I came up with another match and it was when he beat Rafa, but in Hamburg in 2007. And the reason I picked that one is because he broke his clay streak which is something a bit of a theme for Roger, right? He broke Novak's streak later, and then he bageled Nadal in one set. So I thought that was a pretty big sort of statement win for him. Um, this was before Wimbledon 2008, but still, like it was to me, it just felt like a felt like a heavyweight performance. It's fair. I'll buy those. Um, okay, favorite piece of writing about Roger. So I know why you put this because you wanted to say the David Foster Wallace, uh, Roger Federer piece. Am I correct on that? How'd you know? Because that's whatever, like that's when you say writing on Federer, that's what you think of. And I don't, I don't necessarily have one. Um, because reading that to me, it gets a little too, like, I think a big part of like the Federer myth comes from that. We're talking about Roger Federer as religious experience. Right. I remember remember the exact title of it. Yeah. I mean, you should, I highly encourage anybody listening to this to seek it out. If you're listening to this podcast, you likely have already read it. Um, it's great writing, but it just kind of like, there are a lot of really good tennis players. This was absolute peak Federer. I think he wrote this in 05 or 06. Um, but I just think that you, you'd like deify this guy to the point where you then, it has served to like overshadow, especially Djokovic and Nadal in a way that I think is like, unfair to them mm. and i feel like that's like a, a theme i've carried throughout this podcast that federer yes in many ways it is a religious experience we just talked about the fan reactions and all that it means for roger and everything that comes with him but 
there are other very good players too. So it's just like, there's one, like one quibble I have. He talks about this one point that Federer plays and I think it was the 05 US Open final against Agassi. And if you actually go back and like search out that point, it's really not that remarkable. Like, I mean, like I certainly couldn't do that. A lot of players on tour couldn't do it, but he makes it sound like Federer, like, like climb Mount Olympus and like summon this shot. And then he delivered it to Andre Agassi, but it's like a, and almost fairly not routine, but it's a, a shot you'd see at a normal point of match. Like, yeah, John McEnroe reacts to it, but he reacts to a lot of great shots. Um, that's my two cents on this. Sorry to just completely rain on your parade. No, not at all. I was not subtle in my desire to bring that up on the final episode. It's the reason Game Federer exists, to be honest with you. I highlighted the crap out of it. I'm inspired because of what David Foster Wallace wrote. Look, in a way, to me, that the term religious experience is like, Roger Federer cured depression for a lot of people. I mean, it sound, that sounds really highfalutin, but there's this sort of elevating experience when you would watch him in peak Federer is what I'm talking about here. And part of the reasons why the back half has been so painful is because the high of peak Federer was just, it, again, it was a religious experience. Like you have a vision, you have this epiphany, but then you never, ever, ever get to see that again, not the way that you, you want. So I do agree. It is raining on a lot of other people's parades and it's sort of discounting the it's it's discounting tennis as a whole um which is one of my final points for the podcast that i want to make about tennis in general it's a beautiful sport it is transfixing to watch has a lot of elements of boxing and has a lot of a lot of elements of aspiration and when you understand the grind of what people go through to get to this to get on that stage on center court doesn't matter if you're roger federer or any other player just to be one of those few top 10 20 30 50 100 players. It is a beautiful sport. So yes, he kind of elevates Roger Federer beyond the sport of tennis. But I think that if you're a fan and if you appreciate greatness, it's a love letter to greatness is what I would argue in defense of the piece. That's a good point. That's a good way to look at it. Um, yeah. then you could probably write those letters about a lot of different people across several different sports. And I'm sure people have, uh, like I say, I encourage people to read it. Like it's good, but it hasn't aged well for you. Yeah, that's, that's a fair way to and put that's it. fair. I will say the last thing about writings on Roger and writings on Djokovic and Nadal, because they're equally a part of his story. There will be a book, a Brian that comes out on the three of them when they're all done. Right. And that, that's definitely going to be one that's front and center on my bookshelf. Just kind of breaking down and contextualizing the three-headed juggernaut that was Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. Not necessarily in that order, by the way. I agree. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Best hindsight revelation. What did you learn from doing this project? I liked being able to see, and I, I would say I had like a rough idea of this, but just being able to really see it when you look back at these tournaments, it's like waves on a beach or like the tides. You had like the first generation of players Federer was going up against, guys who were older than him. Then you had his, his sort of contemporaries and then the slightly younger players and then the Tsitsipas of the world. Or even between that, there's like a Dimitrov type player, Jan Leonard Struff as a very... Uh, as a, somebody who played a role in this story. Um, I like seeing all that stuff. And you think about how many hundreds of players we've talked about on here from the 2000, from Wimbledon, 2003, all the way up to 
forget the 2018 Australian Open, but like the present day here, the amount of players we've talked about, these are all people who are some of the greatest athletes in the world, and they've all played a, a part in this story. And I think just how it wave after wave of person came through and Federer more often than not was able to, to hold them off and beat them. I just think being able to see it all in one place is really remarkable. Agreed. My hindsight revelation is first off, tennis is just a beautiful sport to watch. And at this level, it's just transfixing. But also learning from you about how difficult the U.S. Open is to win for a variety of reasons. Roger won it five times in a row. Before it was like, yeah, he's a five time U.S. Open champion, five times in a row. But now, realizing the grind uh it's comes off or it you know the revelation is that it's more of a herculean effort than anything so that's what stood out to me before we wrap up i want to thank you brian uh for your time and dedication to going down this road with me this would have been a bright spot in any year but it's been one of the few things that has made this year 2020 worth remembering personally. So thank you. Thank you, Vic. And yeah, I'm really glad we were able to do this. I'm really glad that you took the initiative of setting it all up and all the bells and whistles. And I'm I'm really glad that we were able to do this, like you said, in a year that's not been easy for anybody. And just to hopefully be able to give our listeners and give each other in a lot of ways, like a 45 minute hour, just kind of look back, discussion, just like an escape in really difficult times, challenging times. And I hope and know that better times are ahead. Uh, but these were 20 great tournament, like 20 great titles for Roger Federer, but they also meant so much to so many people. Like think about, okay, if he's playing a major, he's going to play seven matches. Think about most people aren't going to multiple days of a, of a major tournament. So that's seven different days worth of people who are saying, oh, I saw Roger Federer at that tournament. So how many hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people there are out there who have just wanted to watch Roger Federer at a major tournament, whether it's Wimbledon or Australia, New York, the US Open or in Paris at Roland Garros. And just to be able to relive what we look at as like, oh, that was this match. But for, for so many people, that was probably a day they're going to remember for the rest of their lives, the day they watch Roger Federer win his third round match at the 2009 Australian Open. Um, not a tournament he won, but you get the point. And just seeing what that means to so many people has been, it's a privilege to work in sports because of that, but this has helped drive that home. Agreed. We've created a time capsule that we can both be proud of. And with that, we will be signing off until Grand Slam number 21. Deal. Ball's in your court, Roger. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Vic. See you soon. 